well, I have a Woodford and Coke in my hand. Why not something more fancy for this Altitude Sessions? Well, because I'm a man of the people. It's toast. Mm. I'm glad to be back. Let's go. You're listening to the Altitude Sessions, where top healthcare executives come to elevate their healthcare thinking. Now here's your host, Brian Melanson. Yeah, it is good to be back. As you know, I'm Brian Melanson. What's your name, scumbag? Yeah, well, jeez. I know I've taken a few months off to deal with all that's going on due to coronavirus, but hopefully you guys will cut a little slack here. I mean, we've... uh, We've had a lot going on, just working with a number of folks just trying to solve for what most people call the new normal, I guess. So with all that, it's been pretty pretty crazy, pretty busy. Hey, you know, going back to my, my good friend there, hopefully by the time we're done with this, you don't all think I'm a scumbag God. But, you know, this this is a, I think we're all going through our own version of uh, physical training, you know, PT. We're doing our own mental conditioning while all this crazy shit's going on around us. It seems as we get closer and closer to the... 2020 election, it's just this shit's getting crazier and crazier. But if this is your first time stopping by, again, I'm Brian Melanson, founder and president of Four Innovation. And today I'm going to jump into the murky waters of trying to discuss some type of an autopsy and analysis of what's going on with COVID-19 and then offer an idea, I guess, on a way forward and kind of how we can navigate the world we're living through together right now. So at the risk of being maybe called a scumbag at the end of this, and if our divisiveness as as a country continues to carry over like it does on other issues, it means probably by the time we get to the end of this episode, half of you will have loved it and half of you will have hated it. And, you know, whatever. This is America 2020 after all, right? So here we go. Let's dive into this together. So the last time we we were together here on this, this podcast and we were chatting together, just kind of talking about where things are going with even some of our models that and M4 and other things, and it was a late-night podcast, and we were talking about, with optimism, all the things that were in front of us and what the 2020 year was going to look like. And among you, if you looked out on all the social media channels and everything else, we were watching all these Roaring 20 parties going on, which, you know, when Kristen and I talked about it here, we felt felt a little tone-deaf because those of you who continue to forget kind of how history works are doomed at times to repeat it. And... If I recall, all the Roaring Twenty parties celebrating the, the you know the nineteen twenties led to some years that uh, were not so roaring after all. So here we are. We're kind of now in twenty twenty. We've set ourselves on this course, and we got going pretty quick, pretty quick in the first quarter, and it got out of the garage pretty quick, and everything else, and life felt pretty good, and we were just we were driving and going and going and going and going and going and going. And then it just kind of felt like this. Yeah, kind of like that. So I know I've been gone for a few months, and well, things are a bit different, so we'll take a little bit of a different approach. You know, governments and policymakers, academics, scientists, business leaders, citizens, we're all trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and how to live through these very trying times. They're... They're very uneven times. There are times where there is a segment of the population that's doing fine. There's a segment of the population that's thriving. There's a segment of the population that is 
getting its behind kick from all all sides and it's just it's it's we're starting to see some of the unevenness and the types of jobs that we have in society and stuff in this coronavirus pandemic that we're living through is really starting to pull some of these things out and you know the analysis of all of this and I'll give you my spin on it is if you're a leader and you're trying to lead a a city, your country, you're trying to lead your state, you're trying to lead your organization through this this pandemic, there's the best option always is to have a system in place to where when you have a little outbreak like happens in Africa with Ebola and other things, the whole world reacts quickly, contains it pretty quickly, and, and ends it. And it, with the viruses like Ebola and, and such and how they work, because they've got such a a long incubation time, and they're they're very, um, they're, 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 it takes quite a quite a bit for them to spread. We're able to do that and do that pretty effectively for these killer viruses. The coronavirus is a different beast because this this son of a bitch it likes to it likes to survive. It likes to find lots of hosts to hang out in, and it's it's you know it's based a coronavirus has been around for a long time. This is just a novel version of it. It is this. This thing that we, it's a big forest fire that we can't, we can't get our, our arms around and it just, the blaze just seems to keep going up and up and up and we are setting records, the wrong kind of records all over as the world's kind of watching kind of what we're made of right now. So let's say the fire's already started and it's here and we now know it's here and we're a little late in reacting. You got two strategies that you can put forth. In, in this, and in, in our country, we've put forth both of these strategies. But those two strategies are one, stomp it out by closing everything down and then fire a big old bazooka of incentives at the population, tell them to stay home, do what's right, and, and kill this thing off. You know, isolate it, kill it, and then have a system to track it when it's all said and done to when things pop up, you can figure out how to, how to handle it and stomp it back down and just keep fighting that fight until the bigger army of vaccines and other things show up and allow us to, I don't know if we'll ever fully win this war, but allow us to put some containment around it and fight it like we do the flus and other things that are part of our society and endemic in lots of other ways. So that's one, that's one strategy. The second is, is to, hey, let's just say it is what it is. Start moving forward and let's protect the most vulnerable and let the rest of the population safely go about their business. So how do we do it in the U.S.? Well, I think we, because we're so ideologically divided, we've half-assed the best parts of both of those ideas. We've chosen neither one nor two. Some places have gone deeper on one. Some places have gone deeper on, on the second idea of just letting the most vulnerable be protected and opening the population up for everything else. But in, in our world, because we haven't done it in any unifying form, it's just in, in general kind of a half-assed clusterfuck. So, you know, we started staying at home in March. We fired the bazooka with the CARES Act. We spent $2.7 trillion in that act, you know, a total of about $3.6 trillion and all the packages that have been passed to date. There's another $3 trillion package that's gone through the House that the Senate's like, I don't know about that. And we, we did all that. So we, we, we did the whole Mike Pence coronavirus task force. You know, we're on day three of... 14 days to stop the spread or slow the spread or whatever it was with his little 
$4.99 PowerPoint thing that he was holding up and instructing the country and how to behave. And here's the reason why we're shutting everything down and we've got people staying at home and we're going to give you, you know, these, these opportunities through aid and other things to make it worth your while. Trust us. And we're going to get through this, you know, 14 day period and, and everything's going to get better. Well, it didn't happen. If you look at where we are now, things are getting worse and you know, pretty much economically the entire, the entire news story is, is often about how, how, how the ideologically different states are performing and it's dominates the news cycle among some other things that have gone on. But that's, that's one of the, the, the big storylines that's been going on really since March and it's a daily thing. We get the graphics that are up and they talk about it every day. Here's the graphics and here's how it's all playing out. So the CDC came out, you know, and they gave us guidelines and they, they told us, here's, Here's what you need. You need a stepped or staged approach. And one of those first steps is to say, you got to have a 14-day declining trend in cases for states that even want to start to think about how to open their economies back up on a step basis. As we know, a lot of governors went quicker. And as executives of their state, that can't just blindly spend money like the federal government thinks it can. They have to run the state like an executive and they think about the state more like an executive and some of those governors were seeing workforce trust pools and other things start to dry up. And they're like, God, we got to get the economy going again. It's really hard to shut all this thing, this, this thing down and then try to stage it back up. It's, it's difficult. If you've ever been on a boat, a big boat, particularly when it goes in for winter storage and other things, it, it takes a while to get it primed to get back on the water. Same thing with our economy. Then a lot of governors to their, Defense really worried about that. We've had other governors that said, hey, we've got science and other people that are in here telling us, scientists and other people that are in here telling us the best thing to do is just to strangle this virus and have everybody stay home. And it's not even up for discussion. And we'll figure out and sort out the rest after the fact. And those, those two approaches have created a world in the national news media where a lot of people still kind of you know tune in or they get their, consume their information other places, but they get the sound bites throughout the day is created this world of mixed messaging and the stay home versus go out and get your life back on track. You know, this has all created a world where folks are now hurting, they're frustrating and they're confused as shit. So you look at what's going on now. We've got, you know, fresh new outbreaks in places like California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. You've got the governors of California, Arizona, and then places like here in Texas, you know, that recently started rolling back parts of what they were, they were opening. You know, restaurants are now rolling back to a lesser capacity. Bars are being closed because as they look at the science, you know, the younger folks getting together in bars, it's a pretty good place to transmit the virus. There's been suspension of things like rafting trips. It's been a little uneven, you know. Uh, I, I don't believe Texas has closed down amusement parks, but I think Arizona has. There's been things like that going on. And this kind of unevenness, when you take this, this blunt policy instrument and you do these orders it also unintentionally starts to pick winners and losers based on how these orders are drafted, based on the types of businesses you're in. I mean, if you're a bar owner, or, or, we, do we, or a restaurant owner, or some of those folks in the services industry, are we okay with these folks losing their livelihoods, losing their, their dedication and their passion toward their business while we wait out the coronavirus? Or do we find ways to socialize our losses like we've done with banks and airlines and other, you know, so-called essential industries? 
it's again, this is part of that winning and losing the unintentioned, the unintentional picking of winners and losers. But these are big policy questions that would tax us in the best of political climates, even if we all found ways to get along and, you know, put our ideologies aside and do what's best for the country. But <laughs> last I looked, we ain't in that environment, friends. This leads to the thinking around that second option, which is to keep society open while protecting the most vulnerable among us. If you look around the world, you know, the, the country that's been most in the news and experimenting around this line of thinking is Sweden. They've kept open while using common sense thinking. That means that shops, gyms, restaurants, they haven't been shuttered. They haven't promoted a wide open economy either. There's, like I said, the term was common sense. They've left it on their citizenry to make good decisions. What saddens me a little bit about where we are is do we believe now we have to have a much more heavy handed government because we don't trust our citizenry to make good decisions? And when we get down to the root of all of this, is that what separates us from a country like Sweden? God, I hope not. But in that country, 90% of their population, which is 10 million folks, they live in urban settings. They're not out, you know, yodeling in the countryside. They're, they're, they live in urban cores, tightly bunched together. So because of that, it's again, part of the common sense thinking. They have limited public gatherings to 50 or fewer folks. They've advised against non-essential travel. They've closed in-person gatherings at high schools and universities. They've strongly encouraged working from home. They've done all of these things. But what they have not done is issued a stay-at-home order. We'll get to why they haven't done that in a bit, but they haven't issued a stay-at-home order like we continue to toy with here. And even some of our experts, oh, man, this fire is burning so bright we might have to roll it all back to get under under control again. I, I, Well, maybe, but I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that at this point. And that's a, a larger point I'll make as we get a little further into our discussion here together today. But with regard to COVID-19, Sweden has, air quote, fared worse, end air quote, than their other Scandinavian neighbors. And on certain metrics, that's true. They do have five times more positive cases than neighboring Denmark. That has created some political discourse inside that country with their epidemiologists and folks that are trying to lead them in a different way. There are a lot of talking heads around the world, the World Health Organization, and others that are all trying to discredit the approach to the best of their ability. All that aside, this is where it gets interesting. And we're going to get into that very interesting moment in just a moment. But if you don't mind, I'm going to take a two-minute quick break, refresh my drink, and we'll keep going hard at this. Hi, fellow PL leader. So you're stuck in the mud hearing the daily accounts of how the coronavirus is wreaking havoc on our economy. You just wrapped up your 30th Zoom call this week. It was another culture-building happy hour with bonus bathroom footage because your version of hashtag Jennifer forgot about her webcam again. As you started to dream about yesteryear on the road, in all of those productive meetings that helped grow your business, you notice that most airlines aren't even serving booze in first class anymore. Yeah, we know what you're thinking. Why? 
Why would someone like Delta replace that bourbon that always temporarily made you forget that you're sitting in a tuna can and they did it with an offering of Coca-Cola's version of water? Water. It's exactly this moment when you rise to your feet and you say, fuck you, coronavirus. Hey, we get it. We've always understood you. That's why M4 offers multiple ways for you to stay connected this year. For those of you being asked to stay home by your employers or because you feel it's appropriate to do so, we've got Formulate Virtual Open Forums coming your way soon, once a month on Friday afternoons. Not good enough? And you want to grow your P&L from that same chair that now perfectly conforms to your buttocks? Reach out and ask us about our virtual grow models. See, we really do know you. And for those that feel the need to connect with others, you know, other fellow humans, well, we're still moving forward with Formulate 2020 in Jackson Hole this October. The group's not going to exceed 50 folks in total, so we're doing our part to make it as safe as possible for you. We're taking a number of other steps, too. Check out our website at m4innovation.com for more details. Okay, it's time to go. This bourbon is starting to taste a lot like water. Thanks a lot, Delta. Ah, uh, yes, this bourbon does not taste like water here today, though. So, as I said, this is where it starts to get interesting. When you start to get into the mathematical exercise of what's going on in the world, and you, to the extent, take an emotionally charged issue and try to take the emotion out by, by at least looking at numbers, numbers that are hard to truly grasp for their authenticity because there's just so much variability in how these numbers are being collected, but doing the best we can. I think that deaths per 100,000 is pretty much the best data point we have in scoring how well we're doing on a state-by-state basis, how, how well we're doing as a country compared to other countries around the world in handling this virus. So it's, it's the, to me, feels like the cleanest way of doing it because all these things around case counts and testing rates and all the other stuff, it doesn't really mean much because you just don't know how all those numbers are coming together. And they're not, there's no real true unifying body that's as accurately saying this is how each of these states are putting all this information together and rolling up the numbers. It's a typical analytic problem, garbage in, garbage out in a lot of ways. But if you start at deaths per 100,000 and say, all right, that's probably the best data point we can use because those, those are pretty real. If you stop breathing and we know how many people are in a country, we can make some decent assumptions that are at least going to be directional. So if we look at our friends in Sweden with their model, they're sitting at 51.85 deaths per 100,000 folks as of June 29th, and this is according to the Coronavirus Resource Center with our friends at Johns Hopkins. Spain is higher. Spain is at 60.66 per 100,000. So is the UK at 65.63, where we in the US, we're sitting at 38.45 per 100,000 now with the, the recent stuff that's going on. Maybe that number goes up, but I don't know. Testing rates, and, and not just testing rates, but, you know, the actual infection rates seem to be going up, but the death rates haven't quite yet caught up. And the death rate typically is a, a trailing metric, but we'll see if the treatment protocols are getting better, too, to keep the death rate from spiraling and being at a, a similar ratios as when it was when we were back in March. And as this, this stuff was just getting going, we were learning more about what was going on. So we'll see. It's too soon to say there, but right now we're 3845 which puts us better than, than Sweden and, and others. But how about, you know, Denmark? This is the 
the experts, they always, the, the pushes, but look at, compare Sweden to Scandinavian neighbors. They're the closest comparison if you use that approach. They're sitting at 10.42 deaths per 100,000, and for good measure, Finland is sitting at 5.94, numbers far, far, far lower than where Sweden is. So does, does all of this really matter much? Did Sweden screw up? Should they have taken the same approach as Denmark? I think there are people inside that country that would argue that they, they could have. But there's a punchline to this, too, that where I think at the core, in a leadership moment, that the epidemiologist that's leading Sweden's approach believes in something maybe deeper, something a little bit more longer term, something that's a little bit more, more in it for the, for the long run than just solving for a one-quarter problem to make the numbers look better. And we'll see how it plays out. But Sweden's GDP, if you look at the gross domestic product, it's expected to contract around 6.7% year-on-year as we end 2020. Italy, they're going to see an 11.3% decline. The UK, 115 The U.S. projected at 7.3%. This all gives perspective. And this is from the OECD economic outlook projections that just came out in June. So this data is relatively fresh. But what you don't see is, you know, Italy. Italy really shut everything down. And, you know, they're going to see a, a bigger decline. The U.K., a bigger decline. The U.S., somewhat a little bit more of a decline even with our mixed approach, but we did shut the country down for a bit. You know, one of the things that's driving it is that we are very much just like the United Kingdom and just like Spain, we, we're, we've got some dependencies on tourism, we have some dependencies on service, we have a lot of service economy jobs. Those things become drags on the economy when the engine that drives those jobs is no longer running at full throttle. That creates these GDP declines. Sweden's got a GDP issue because they're, they're a big export economy. And if the rest of the world's sucking wind and they're not importing the goods that Sweden's exporting, things like Volvos and other things, then it becomes a little bit of an issue. And some, so those numbers are kind of take them in a grain of salt. I like the deaths per 100,000 a little bit better. And it shows, you know, that Sweden is higher than its peer group up in Scandinavia, but it is, you know, they're, they're still performing as well or better than Spain and some of the others that did some pretty drastic measures once they got their, their game played the way that their politicians and community leaders wanted to play it. Here's the belief, though, and this is something we're thinking about. The Swedish government took this approach because they have a belief that COVID-19 is going to be around for some time. And this is where I don't think we have enough of these honest conversations in our country. We're always looking for the silver bullet. And I don't know if the silver bullet is we're going to have a vaccine and it's all good and everything's going to return to normal V shape. Woohoo. You know, V for victory, economic bounce. I, I don't, I don't know if there's true authenticity in those folks that are promoting that narrative. I, I the approach here is that this is going to be around for, for some time. Tight lockdowns in their view wouldn't really do much to slow the spread in the long run. You know, is that assumption correct? That'll be a question that, Academics and others will study for decades, and they'll write lots of books on it. But their epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell, he he made a tough gut decision. And this, to me, is, is what leadership feels like. He made a tough gut decision, not in alignment to the world groupthink that we see so readily anymore. Now, has he waffled on it at times in the press about the decision? Sure. You know, in retrospect, could I have done it differently, and could we have saved more lives and, and all those things? And it sounds just like the brain of any other leader that's had to make a tough call. 
God, could I have done it differently? Could I have done it better in the moment? Sure. There's probably things that we, we I mean, the, the true edict is that we always know more today than we knew yesterday. And I'll know more tomorrow than I knew today. If we're doing it the right way and we're continuing to learn every day. So, yeah, as a leader, has he had some, some reflection on, on, is this the right call or not? Yes, but has he, has he overall wavered from the conviction that it's the right strategy? No, he hasn't. You know, the thinking in Sweden is they believe their strategy works for those with a longer-term horizon regarding this fight around COVID-19 because it's a long-term fight. This is like going to a world war. It's not something that's going to be solved in a year. You know, after all, how sustainable are the extreme lockdown models that were pioneered in places like China, South Korea, New Zealand, if it takes a couple of years or more to get this so-called effective vaccine? And will the vaccine ever be really effective? You know, contact tracing found in... Seoul in South Korea that, you know, a man, once they reopened, he went to a bar and infected 29 others. And they're doing a lot right, according to most experts. Now, they had the system in place to track that and track it down and figure it out. But the Swedes believe that this huge suppression of the first wave through extreme measures like that will only make the second and subsequent waves potentially worse. And if you've studied the Spanish flu and other things, 1918, 1919, you know, there, there, were, there were multiple waves. It wasn't just a one-and-done thing. They've taken the approach of trusting their citizens to do the right thing when it comes to social distancing and staying home. Stay home when you feel sick. It's common sense stuff. They believe in allowing the disease to spread gradually through their population while isolating the most at risk, which increases the overall resilience of their population. To me, it feels like a country allowing its citizens to use, again, that term common sense without the need of taking draconian measures inside its borders. Now, the counter-argument is that countries like Korea, China, and Denmark are going to see a smaller hit to their GDPs because of their decisive actions. Korea and China are expected to see declines of 1.2 and 2.6%, respectively, by the end of 2020. Same OECD data. It's not a bad counter-argument. It's just one that feels like those measures won't work in the U.S. Why? Because we're an individualist, individualistic, narcissistic culture that puts ourselves above everybody else. So will we suffer more? Will we pay a heavier price? Maybe so. Our, our individualism and lack of a common national identity make doing what has gone on in other parts of the world very difficult to do here. When experts also use China and Korea's examples, they're cherry-picking as well on that side. We can all cherry-pick and make our arguments. You know, Spain, Germany, Iceland, all these others went really hard to contain the virus. Some were a little bit earlier than others, but eventually they shut down their economies. They made everybody stay home. And they're going to see dips in their economy because of the overall drag on the, on the global economy and other things because how we're interconnected with 6 to 11% this year. You know, politicians are having a hard time having a conversation about what we should be doing and why. If our economies open up too much and people start dying at a faster rate, then the viewpoint is that they're not taking all human lives into account, and that's unacceptable. And it, it jumps into a, folks, into a focus of a group of people that will come out and they'll be outraged because of it. We are an outrage-based culture. Outrage is a viral emotion. It drives clicks. It drives social media. You know, I can't believe this fucker said this stuff that's actually out there. It's what drives ratings on the news. It drives, you know, there's been studies out there that show that really it's extreme joy and outrage are the two biggest emotions that are viral. But the one that's taken advantage of most in anything to get people really fired up in, in our country's outrage. 
we're an outrage-based culture. We love to be outraged for whatever reason, moving from one thing to the next. So if the economy opens up too much and people start dying at a faster rate, there's people that are going to be outraged because we're not taking all human lives into account. There will be political opponents that will jump on this because we're in an election year. Why not? Why wouldn't they? But, but, I say, why not go further, further with that line of thinking if we're outraged about if losing one life is too many? Then why not we also throw into the election edict a mandate to end all wars? Since the loss of any human life is above the common good in that argument, right? That's about sacrifice. Speaking of sacrifice, on the other side, you could talk about how we should make this decision to just shut down the economy and let's kill the virus. Hopefully, shutting down the economy allows us to kill the virus faster than we're killing the economy by taking that action. But how far does that sacrifice need to go? Does it go to the loss of tens of millions of jobs? We're already seeing that. Does it go to the loss of the dreams of people who built their businesses, these business owners? Do they lose everything? For the sake of the better good, for the sake of the common good, to the loss of the future stability because of killer national and local debts. We're piling on debt. People are talking about how our dollar might just be in a real shit, shitty place here in a couple of years because of the things that we're doing now. And even on a real localized basis, the Texas Workforce Commission, they're out of money. They spent their $2 billion trust fund and they're now drawing on loans from the federal government. These are the hard, cornered, feel like I have nowhere to turn, no-win situation type things that leaders are oftentimes at, at certain times in their business are faced with. Leaders right now, because of the coronavirus and things like the cruise industry, they're in a really difficult place, and they're probably a case study in a lot of things that you shouldn't do when those things are be written a decade or so now in times like this and how they've treated their customers, how they've treated their employees, how they're going about how they want to get their businesses started back up. They've made a lot of really stupid decisions. A lot of very arrogant decisions, if I, if I may say that. It does feel that way. And there's a lot of politicians that jump in these moments to make it more about them than about the common good and the collective as well. And that's, that's the killer of all of this. That's what, that's what sounds, sounds kind of crazy. All right, so let's get to the big moment here. Let's get to the point. If you were to ask me, I like the Swedish approach. I think it fits for where we are as a country. I think it, it's, it's you know, the, we, we've kind of let everything out of the bag already. It is what it is. So the thinking around solving for this is a multi-year problem. I think that's a smart way to go about it. And there seems to be a no-win decision as a leader. You have to pick your course and stay it. You know, as I said earlier, the World Health Organization and others have been hard at it trying to disprove what Sweden is doing. The epidemiologist there isn't backing down. No matter which of the options that were presented here, if you are leading all of this, when we look at our current reality, again, because we tried this half-assed approach to both strategies, I think we're at a point now where we're going to have to ride this out and manage our economies as smartly as possible. It's that moment where a pilot's in a plane, a commercial plane, and they're making a decision talking with the operations center who has a you know, meteorologist, whether they can outrun a line of storms. You turn left, and the map seems like there's a gap in the storms, and all of a sudden that gap, that gap closes, and it's all red in front of you. And at that point, it's like, shit, we're going to have to ride it out. And you just basically dial the engines back, because that's what they do in turbulence. You, you, you pair the engine back a little bit, you fly a little bit slower, and you work your way through it. 
for our economy, that seems like what we're going to have to do. That's the best analogy at this point, in my opinion. I think we're at that point because we are a split country with different ideologies. It's going to drive us to these weird places like where we are today. The reality is the coronavirus is an ageist virus. The common flu is too. They both disproportionately attack the elderly. The flu does a better job of sneaking up on younger folks. Some studies and analyses have shown that the coronavirus is not overly effective at, at, at impacting younger folks. You know, in the U.S. through May, about four and five deaths for those 65 or older. That's courtesy of the CDC. On the deadliest day so far that we've tracked, April 18, 2.4% of those people that died on that day were under 45 years of age. New York City, through all of their data analyses, is being the, the outbreak, the epicenter for wave one, at least to this point. You know, they say that most that die have an underlying condition, the Lancet, overseas. They agree, as they published a report, that around 21 to 22% of the world's population is at risk for severe COVID-19 infection because of the existence of an underlying risk factor. Age is a driver to underlying risk factors. Believe me, because as I get older, I feel it aches and pains that I didn't know previously existed. Like, holy shit, where did that come from? I think there has to be a better solution than the all-or-nothing approach we've been using on both sides of our political aisles. That's why I like experimentation in Sweden. I do. That feels like common sense. There's that phrasing in common sense leadership to me. Waiting for a vaccine to solve our problems may create a long time waiting for it to be effective society-wide. That time waiting could wreak a lot more havoc if we continue to have this you know, slapdash approach to managing our economy, to managing the needs of our citizenry, especially if it feels like we still are forgetting to exercise common sense over ideology. A vaccine is intended to move us as safely as possible to herd immunity. This is why there's always a push every year with the flu season to get one. Coronavirus has just expanded our quote-unquote flu season as the coronavirus is now a new this novel version is now a new player. It isn't going anywhere. It's going to continue to mutate into new variants. Scientists already think that it's mutated and it's spike protein. That's the thing when you look at the graphic, all the menacing stuff that, you know, that shows the, the ball and then there's the, the little triangular spikes or there's a little, you know, in the more mundane graphics. That spike protein is the thing that lets the virus itself get into your cells and then it takes your cells over to make more copies of itself. That's how it replicates. So spike proteins, the way it, it does its thing, it's mutated from the Chinese version to a more infectious version in the European and U.S. strains. They call that spike protein, it's an amino acid protein, D614G, or they just call it the G. That's the little thing that's made it different. It doesn't seem to make the virus more deadly, it just makes it more successful in spreading. There's a lot more research going on around the world as the scientists continue to race around the world with this virus to see what, what it's doing. The takeaway is that we've got a new endemic issue to deal with that will be here long after 2020. So thinking about how to get through the next quarter, to think about how to get through the next six months, the next year, even, even with your businesses and the decisions that you're making and whether you're bringing employees back or whether you're approaching your employee benefits business and how you're doing that. Those things need to be thought about in the long run, in the long, the long game of how we're going to be living through the moments that we're in today and how we catch up maybe with a dose of reality over some of the fear that permeates what has kept us relatively stagnant to this point. Some of you may disagree and say that that's, that's intellect because we just know that that's the right thing to do. The catch is that people like Dr. Anthony Fauci have recently stated that it could be unlikely that even the first vaccine round would get us all the way to herd immunity. 
this is that long game again that we're talking about. He's, you know, talked in, in public settings recently, I think with the Aspen Institute, he said, yeah, how do you take one that was 75% effective? And if we got it to most of the population, it would get the numbers up and the folks that have effective antibodies against the virus, but it may not be enough to get to quote unquote herd immunity, which is debated somewhere in that 70, 80% range as it takes for the population to have protection against the downside of things like this novel coronavirus. That's why the Lancet just recently vetted a proposal that says to let everyone under 40 head back out in the wild by opening up the economy and letting them do their thing. Let them go to work. Let them do their, their tender thing. Let them go to the bars, whatever. The hope is that they catch the virus and they'll build this natural wall just as being inoculated via a vaccine would that helps present the easy, that helps prevent the easy spread of the virus to the more vulnerable. Now, when I read this, it was a very short pan discussion. It's on their website. The Lancet panned it kind of as an improbable idea, but I'm not so sure that it is. I'm not so sure the Sweden will not, the, the Swedish will not be proven to some degree brilliant in the long run. I mean, sitting around being forced to do 30 Zoom calls a week for the next one, two, three, I don't know, pick a number of years probably feels like hell to some of you fellow PL leaders. All while we're waiting on this magic silver bullet, this vaccine, given that this thing's going to mutate just as the flu does, the vaccine will. Probably, you know, this this vaccine war will probably be an ongoing one, just like it is with the flu. Strands change requires a different, slight variant of the vaccine. It's also not going to be a panacea. We haven't eradicated the flu either. We're just going to have to smartly find new ways to get back out there and keep our lives, families, jobs, cities in this country moving forward. I think the breakthroughs that matter more to me are the treatment protocols that help us to continue to weaken the virus when we're infected with it. The antiviral stuff, you know, in the flu world, it's Tamiflu. In, in our world, it might be a much more expensive version of it, but, you know, remdesivir and some of the other things that are out there, that seems to be as promising of a step as even vaccination. So in as civil as a way as possible, this is a conversation I'd love to have in the coming weeks. I'm not here to be right. I'm not here to help you as, as a guru, as someone that's in a position it's to tell you, tell you what you think. I'm, I'm not here to tell you what to think at all. I want you to think differently and to think for yourself. That's the whole purpose of these types of conversations via this podcast and the things that we do on a day-in-and-day-out day basis. What's been provided here is just one tool in your arsenal to help you do exactly that, think for yourself. And I'm glad that this is a tool because you're listening to this now that is in your arsenal. One thing's for certain. History is going to be judging all of us in our actions around this for a long time. We will find that decades from now, did we do the right things? Did we cause more economic damage and problems, unforeseen problems for the general population because of the mixed, halfway confused start and stop approaches that we that we took to manage this pandemic? I know this is a very personal time for some of you. This 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 is you've been hit with loved ones that were lost to this this virus. You've been hit with the perfect job that you had that vanished due to the economy. You've been hit with you know living with different different environmental circumstances that, that may not be optimal. There's a whole lot of shit that's gone on. And only time's going to tell how well we did with all of this. And I'll leave you with the key question. Which route do you think was right? Total lockdown or find a way to stay smartly open? And I bet we'll split 50-50 down the middle on which, which approach was probably right. I think the stay smartly opened approach 
just feels like it makes more sense because it balances the needs of the economy with the needs for fighting this virus. I don't think that we can live in continual or perpetual lockdown for months or years on end. I don't believe we have an economy that's actually built to do that. So anyway, it's left us at a crazy time. I hope this was a nice kickoff for getting the, the podcast, podcast going again. We will get into some healthcare and insurance related things here on the next episode. And we look forward to doing that with you. Until then, be safe. We'll talk again soon. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Altitude Sessions. Don't be a stranger and stop on by again. You can subscribe to the Altitude Sessions on iTunes to never miss a future episode. Feel free to also follow Import Innovation and Brian Melanson on LinkedIn. We'll see you on down the road. Until then, be sure to reach out and tell a good friend you love them. They could probably use that message right now. <laughs>